Good evening. Welcome this evening. I'm glad that you're here to study the Word. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. We're in the chapter right before Exodus chapter 20, and those of you that have studied your Bible before know that that's the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so the children of Israel, as we've studied so far in these first 18 uh, chapters, uh, they have been basically uh, in slavery, then delivered with a lot of complaining. That's, that's where these people are. And God has been teaching them. The last few chapters are really are about how God brings them to Mount Sinai. They're now at Mount Sinai. They're camped here. And we spend quite a bit of time with them here at Mount Sinai where they have these meetings with God. They're going to have a meeting with God here in this chapter. Very interesting chapter. Understanding this one, I think, is really important as we move into chapter 20, as we get the, the Ten Commandments themselves. But uh, they're, they're camping there at the mountain that God had brought them to. Remember, uh, God had promised to get his people out of Egypt because God wanted his people to worship him, and, and they could not worship him there in Egypt because of all the idolatry. It was back in Exodus 3, verse 12. Here's the verse here. I'll put it up real fast on the screen. Uh, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's right there somewhere. There it is. And so this is chapter 19 now, and this is a fulfillment of what God had told them uh, that he was going to do, bring them out so that they now could worship him. So God's going to meet these people here in chapter 19. I've entitled this section, Final Test Prep Before Giving of the Law. So God's going to test them one more time uh, in this chapter before he gives the law to them. Let's ask his blessing as we study his word together. Father, thank you for the word. Uh, thank you for these Old Testament truths that are really the foundation Lord, the, the law really is the foundation, helping man to know that, that he's unholy and irreverent and immoral. And without the law, we wouldn't know that. And so the law is good in those regards. And so I pray that as we study this section, this chapter, that we would understand its importance. And Lord, as you uh, uh, have recorded this through your servant Moses, Lord, that we would learn uh, what it is for for our lives, how we can apply these truths to our lives today. Lord, bless and uh, nourish your people with the word tonight. In Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's just read these first six verses, and then we'll break it down. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So there's, that's the key, okay? So they've only been three months since Egypt. On the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, and had come to the wilderness of Sin, or Sinai, and camped in the desert there. So Israel camped now before this mountain, and Moses went up to God. So Moses goes up Mount Sinai now, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. So kind of interesting, these are the children of Israel. The, 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 their founder was Jacob. Jacob's name was changed because, remember, Jacob was a schemer. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was really a, a gnarl. And God changed his name um, and gave him the name Israel. So here he's mentioned both by his name, the family name, and the children of Israel. 
And then verse 4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that's God's goal. God's goal is to make these people that have been in captivity for hundreds of years, he's refining them and he wants to use them and he's always planned on doing that. And again, I've always believed and will continue to believe that God is not done with his chosen people. This is just another one of those great verses in the Bible that help us to understand that. God chose these people, the children of Israel, for his special purpose and his goal right here, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses is getting information now from God on Mount Sinai. Now, I want to point out some things about this because I think it's important. But in the first two verses, my first point, coming to the mountain here, again, it's three months, it says there in verse 1, that they've been, uh, ex- they have been exited from uh, Egypt and they've, they've been in the wilderness and God has prov- proven himself over and over to be faithful. There's the pillar of fire. There's the, the cloud that protects them. There's... God's provision of water when there wasn't any, miraculous provision, then food when they didn't have any food. God is protecting them. Then he, the Amalekites, remember, they attacked him from the rear, and, and God protected them as her held up Moses' arms, and he prayed. And so wonderful, God is working in their lives. God's showing the, the victory across the Red Sea and all of the wonders that he's done for them. But Here's the issue for us today. I mean, wouldn't it be great? There's some things in the Bible that we, we haven't seen. I, wouldn't you love to see the Ark of the Covenant? Wouldn't you love to be able to travel to Arabia and go to this mountain? Wouldn't you love that? But they aren't exactly sure where it is. Now, there's a lot on the Internet. Um, a brother in the fellowship gave me this video that I was able to watch called The Mountain of Fire. Um, there's some different places that they believe this is, but let me show you a couple of things about what was thought to be the place, this old location, which is known as Jebel, the mountain Musa or Sarabel. And if you look at this picture, geographically in your mind, uh, Egypt is on your left side there. They obviously came out of Egypt where the fertile valley, the Nile River and all, and they came across the Sinai Peninsula, and then this is the traditional location. That's why it says that on that map, right there in the Sinai Peninsula, which is really part of Egypt. But it's interesting that the scriptures tell us in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 12, they all tell us that the mountain that Moses encountered God on was in Midian. It's in Arabia. It's, in fact, it's on the other side there. You can see the picture of Midian there on your right-hand side, Midian. That's what's known as Saudi Arabia today or Arabia. And so when you look at the Bible, the, the Sinai Peninsula doesn't fit as a location. They would have traveled across that desert and they would have camped, I believe, down where, see where it says location where the N is? down there by the end, and then you look across that little peninsula, there's a little island there, and then you go over to Midian. 
There, there seems to be, by all geographical evidence, that that is a land bridge. And, and meaning, meaning this, that if, as the water recedes and there's a wall of water, there's actually a place there where they could walk across, um, and it's natural. It's not like some of the area, some of the underground water, they've mapped it. You know, there's ships that can map the underneath the water. And there's chasms down the water. They would have had to walk like down to equal to the 5,000 feet like in the Grand Canyon and then back up the other side. But if you look at this little portion there, um, it's, it's, it, it makes a land bridge. In other words, it would be easier for them with this wall of water to walk across on the dry land. And then they would be, as you see on the map there, they would be in Midian. They would they'd go down this, which I had my pointer here. This is the location of, of what was thought a long time ago, these mountains, and they thought Sinai was here, but now they believe that Sinai is right up in here. This is Arabia. This would have been this land bridge. They would have camped here before the Egyptians came, and, and then that's where the Egyptians would have died. There's some archaeological evidence. There's some wheels in the water there. They, they're not sure how old they are. They've been encrusted with... With all, you can see all this on the internet. If you'd like to study that further and watch the movies, they're actually they're free. You just uh, look for them on the internet. You know where is uh, Mount Sinai? But in Galatians, Paul says, and here's a verse for you to look at. Paul says this: For this Hagar is Mount Sinai, and he actually says it's in Arabia. So Paul in Galatians four tells us that it's in Arabia, not in this other area of Egypt. And then Exodus 2.15, again, says that Moses fled from Pharaoh to Midian. So he got way far away, went all the way across those two areas, and he spent his time in what's known now as Saudi Arabia. So there's a lot of evidence that the location of Mount Sinai is in a place called Jebel el-Laz. Here it is here. Um, and you'll see, this again, this is another map that I don't think is is, is correct as some of the videos that I watched where they crossed way down at the bottom uh, near the, the, where it says Red Sea down there. But you can see that Mount Sinai there is in Arabia, this Jel Al-Laz. It's a real interesting uh, area. You can look at that again on the internet. It's fascinating. There's some artifacts there. There's some rocks that have hieroglyphics on them. Some have menorahs. And it seems that there were people there for a long time. There's built up uh, stones, uh, they would have built up stones to protect their herds, and there's lots of places where that could have happened in that area. So here in the text in chapter uh, 19, verse 3, we have God's reminder to the people. Notice Moses went up, and the Lord called him, and he said, you're the house of Jacob, or the children of Israel. I want you to talk to those people again. The people were acting like Jacob. They were whining and murmuring and complaining against Moses. And so I believe that's why that comment's in there. And then in verse 4, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians um, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So this has been God's plan all along, to get them to this mountain. And he's brought them there. And they've complained, but he's gotten their, them there safely. That's the point. They're fed they have manna to eat. They have lots of water to drink. Even though they're in the, the absolute wilderness, God has brought them up on eagles' wings. I, I love that illustration there. When you, If you've ever seen an eagle, 
when they have their little chick or their little eaglet, they can actually carry them from one location to the other on their back. And so the picture here is, is really clear that this young chick, this eaglet, has no way to protect itself, but God is the eagle. And God puts Israel on his back, and God has delivered his people for a special purpose to this place, Mount Sinai, just like the strong eagle would care for its little chick or its little eaglet there. And they've arrived safely on eagles' wings as God has led them from Pharaoh and across the Red Sea and all those. It's, it's a really beautiful picture as Moses kind of shares that with us. But this is known, God's work in the life of his people, when they either reject it or they don't recognize it, it's known as God's prevenient grace. God is always working. Let me just ask the question. You've come to the Lord, many of you, and you look back in your past and you see things happening that just don't seem natural. I mean, God worked this situation out and this situation, and here you are now. That's God's prevenient grace. He's working in your life on behalf of his plan and purpose. And he did it with the children of Israel. I believe he does it today. I've got a lot of examples where I should have, you know, been totally ruined. You know, I had a, a gun held to my head for 45 minutes down in South Central, kidnapped, you know, at gunpoint. I've had my car go across the 10 freeway, bounce across the 10 freeway up by Yukaipa from the number one lane to the number three lane and spin out and go into the middle guard. I should have got hit by five trucks and everything, but there was a highway patrol that turned its lights on just as I came across the lanes. He was going this direction. I came a bouncing. I, I didn't even touch lane two. I mean, the car just loaded up. It was a forerunner and it just loaded the front end of that thing and threw me in the air all the way to... You've got stories like that. God's provenient grace. You don't even understand why, but God had a purpose. God had a plan. And this is what we're seeing here with these people. God is guiding these people. They're special to him. He's preserving them. He's got them to this place there at Mount Sinai. And then in verse 5, I love this, God's conditional clause. I love the ifs in the Bible. Notice in verse 5, now therefore, if... You will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments so, or covenant. Throughout the Bible, you're going to see these things. People, understand this, believers. God loves you and he's given you free will. He loves you and he's given you free will. You have to make the choice to obey his covenant. You have to obey his choice to be moral and live under his law. And so he's telling them here, if you will obey my voice, keep my command, then you shall be, notice, a special treasure to me above all people. I've chosen you for this, but now you have to make good on the promises I've given you. I've, I've shown you my provenient grace. I've led you out of bondage. You would have never gotten out of Egypt unless I led you, God is saying. But because I've chosen you and because I've led you from that place of bondage and delivered you, um, this is what I want you to do. Now you have to live up to these promises I've given you. Throughout the Bible, it's that way. Brothers and sisters, our job right now, even as New Testament Christians, is to live out those things that God has so clearly written. 
when it comes to morality, when it comes to kindness or goodness, we operate in, under the um, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us because my flesh gets tweaked, my mind gets bent, and we have to operate in that, and we have to be obedient to the Lord. So these people are getting instructed by the Lord that they need to keep the covenant. God's given them covenants. He's given them promises. He says, I, I want you to keep the law. Now, the law is going to come in chapter 20. So he's, again, these are the pretests. He's getting him ready, the people ready for his, his laws to come. He says, I want you to keep my covenant. And they had their choice to obey it or not. The conditions here, notice, they're hearing and keeping. If you will obey my voice, if you'll listen to what I say, and then keep the covenant and actually do it, actually operate in the area of, of responsibility that I've given you. Again, this speaks of a, a, a walk with God, a daily relationship with God, not a people that, that are governed by a God that sits far off in the cosmos somewhere, but a personal God. Listen to my voice. I'm telling you what to Have you ever heard that small voice when you're about to do something, make a decision, and the small voice tells you don't go that way or yes, say that? That's the Lord. And God wants to have this personal day-by-day walk with us. We see that all throughout the New Testament. The same is true here in the Old. God is going to have a relationship with his people And Israel's now going to be the representation of God in holiness to the rest of the world, to all the surrounding nations. So God is saying, I got a covenant, you better obey it. I've got laws, you better listen, because I've I I I, you're my treasure. I love you, and I want you to obey. It sounds like a mother with their children, doesn't it? I mean, we want our kids to do well. We want them to succeed. And so we tell them how to treat others nice and share toys and all those things you teach your little ones, you know. And so God is saying this. You, you need to do this. You're going to be my representative, so you need to reflect my holiness. You've got to listen to my laws and all. The result, again, is going to be, they're, they're going to be a special treasure to me above all peoples, for the earth is mine, God says. So God has always intended Israel to, to hold this special and unique place of being a dispenser of the grace of God. Now, when Jesus came, he came as a Jew, right? So God's dispensing his grace. But the Jews didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. They were steeped in their perverted laws of Judaism, their work-centered religion. And now we are recipients of Jesus, who was a Jew. We, we see God's special people. And you know what? When God takes the church up, which is Jew and Gentile believers, when God takes the church up in the rapture, there's going to be a lot of Jews left behind. We were talking about our guide in Israel uh, three years ago when we were in Israel. This guy knows the, the Old Testament better than any pastor I know. The guy can quote it. He read it to us. He understands it. And um, when you talk to him about Jesus, he'll just say to you, well, I, I, I see it, I understand it, I just haven't received him. I just, I'm not going to accept him. He's Jewish. He doesn't want that. His eyes are blinded. And, and, but, and you make the appeal like, you don't want to miss Jesus. And he goes, well, 
And he knows the New Testament too. He says, well, you know, the Jews are going to have this great resurgence. after if, if Jesus is the Messiah, I'll be here, and I'll be the first one, the first witness. I mean, he knows it. He sees it. And yet, he's disobedient in that sense. But God is going to use the Jews after the church is drawn away. Remember, 144,000 witnesses go, go around the world. They can't be harmed by the Antichrist. And they share the Messiah is Jesus to the Jews. And the Jews come to Christ in record numbers, but they're all killed. For Many of them are killed and martyred. It's, it's a pretty incredible story. God is not done with the children of Israel. He's not done with his nation. He wants them to reflect holiness and purity. They are a special treasure uh, to him. They're very important to him. Verse 6 tells Moses that God tells Moses he wants them to be a kingdom of priests. And here's where we get into the New Testament a little bit. Notice, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So the reason of the covenant, the reason that God's going to give them the law in chapter 20 is because he's chosen them. They're a treasure to him. And he wants them to be a model to all the nations around, kingdom of priests and a holy Nation, have you ever heard that before? Again, it's in the New Testament. Here it is in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Notice this verse here. But you are a chosen generation, Peter says to the Christian, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Who's he talking about? Boy, that sounds just like Exodus 19, doesn't it? He's talking to believers. He's talking about you and me. God has called us out of the world, the ecclesia, the called out assembly. We've been called out to do what? To be God's witnesses. See, we're not supposed to just be part of a club in, in church. Just, oh, we love the Lord and we love the word and we love to worship in church. And when we leave, we're not part of church. Anymore. No, we're to leave and we're to tell others about Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. We're to, we're to be kings and queens of, of God's glory in the future. We're to be priests right now, living holy lives set apart from everyone else in the world. That's what God, that's our identity. So similar in the New Testament, 1 Peter, and then this passage here in Exodus 19. God wants you and I to live a life that honors him so that he can dispense his glory through the message of the gospel. If I'm living like the rest of the world and then I tell them, oh, you need to get saved, the people around me say, well, why do I want to get saved? You're just like me. But if I'm living in a, a, a different way and I love the Lord and I'm kind and gentle and filled with the Holy Spirit and people know that, then when I tell them about Jesus, they're going to want Jesus too. It's important for us to live a life that honors the Lord. And, and God has done the same thing with the children of Israel that, that he's done with you and I through the blood of Jesus Christ. So this chapter is, is wonderful. Verse 7 and 9, the people agree to this covenant. Notice that they agree to it. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. You're going to see Moses who's going to go up the mountain, down the mountain. Up the mountain, down the mountain. He's going to do this over and over. He must have been a really good hiker. 
Because he's going up and down this mountain a lot, carrying the message to the people, carrying the answer back to God. We'll see that several times here uh, in this text. But their answer, they were sincere in their answer, but they're not going to follow through, are they? They've got a long way to go. God's working with them. They were accepting God's covenant by faith. Yes, we will do it like people accept the Lord by faith, the same way in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. And God offers that covenant again. He makes a promise. He offers his blessing. But that covenant and that blessing has to be embraced by the believer, right? You must take the free gift of God that he offers in order to be saved. You have to choose to take that gift. You can't just say, well, save me if you're going to save me, Lord. Or your covenants are good, but I don't know if I want to listen to them or believe them. See, he's calling in Exodus these people to embrace the truth. He wants them to be a holy people. He has told them they're his special treasure. He's got a plan and purpose for them to be a blessing to the world, but they have to embrace it. Just like you and I, when we hear the gospel, we had to embrace it. We had to receive that free gift of eternal Life Again, if it's in Ephesians 2, verse 8. Notice this verse behind me. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a what? It's a gift. That's why your pastor says that. That's why I make a big deal about that appeal. There are those that are five-point Calvinists that do not believe you can choose God because you're a cold stone. That is not what the Bible teaches. I'm sorry, it's unbiblical. What the Bible says is that God offers you an opportunity to choose. We just saw it in Exodus, right? Did you see that? And again, Paul says you have an opportunity to receive this gift, to accept Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe on his name. Belief in Jesus is essential. You cannot come to Christ without receiving or come to God without receiving the free gift in Christ. And the same thing was true here in this story that we're reading. They had to agree on the covenant. They had to receive the covenant by faith, just like we do. And then look at verse 9. Moses returned to the top of the mountain with the people's answer. And the Lord said to Moses, so he's going back up to the mountain, behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that a people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses here, he's going back and forth between the people. Notice the people aren't going to God. We're going to see there's, a, there's fear between the people and God, a righteous fear. But it's Moses who becomes this intermediator. He's going back and forth and speaking. There's a thick cloud, you know, and Moses is hiking back and forth. And then here in verse 10 through 15, we get these particular st- uh, information or steps that the children of Israel were to take to prepare for the giving of the law, to prepare to get in God's presence. God is going to now come and dwell with them on this mountain. So they're going to prepare to meet with God. Verse 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. That word consecrate is important to, to Israelites, to the Jews, even to this day. You remember In the New Testament, the story is about the ceremonial cleansing of the Pharisees. They washed, washed, washed. I'm I'm looking forward to a couple weeks. We're going to to be in Philippi in a couple weeks. Can't wait to get there. You remember in Acts chapter 16, 
Paul went to sleep. He was going to go east into what's modern-day Turkey. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going there. You're going to go, across, you're going to go north to Europe, to Macedonia. It was the member of the man, the Macedonian call. And he ends up going across over to Philippi. And on the outskirts of Philippi, right on the coast there where he comes, he ends up being there on the Sabbath. So he's looking for some Jews to worship God with. And there weren't 10 there in that city. So he goes down to the stream. Why? Because they washed. They always washed on when they had their Sabbath preparation. So he goes down to the stream and he meets Lydia. Remember Lydia? And Lydia accepts Jesus Christ and the gospel through Paul. She becomes the first convert there. That's where we start our Greece tour in a couple of weeks. Can't wait. We're going to have such a great time. And we're going to follow footsteps of Paul. But the, the significance there is, is just washing. These people were going to wash, and God calls them to wash. So he's going to tell them three things to do to prepare for their meeting with God. Number one, wash your clothes. He says that in verse 10. Now, this is not like, you know, put on your best Sunday suit and your Easter bonnet, ladies, for Easter, you know, to impress God. That's, that's not what he's doing here. They're to wash because God is holy. They're to wash their clothes because God is righteous and he wants them to do something to show him that they're obedient here. He's asking them to wash their clothes. The, the clean clothes means that they've gotten rid of the dirt. They've gotten rid of their, the sin in a sense. It's just, it's, it's, it's just a symbol there. But washing their clothes reminded them of the truth, that they're coming into the presence of a holy and righteous God is a physical reminder of a spiritual truth. Secondly, he says, be ready on the third day. Now, we see this third day again and again and again. Verse 11, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So God's going to come. He's going to come visit. We need to get ready. He's coming in three days. This time period is interesting. There are a lot of speculation about what that means, but I, I just believe personally as I read the story, you know, just keep it in context, context that he's just giving the people this preparation time. You better get ready. They were never ready for Moses. They, they had all kinds of problems. They were whining and moaning and complaining against Moses and his leadership. So God's giving them three days to get prepared. This is going to be serious. He said this is a very serious time here. And you'll notice in verse 15 that Moses commands them. He says, don't even come near your wives. This is a, a very serious thing. You know, not, not because conjugal uh, relations are sinful. That's not what it's saying here. So don't take this out of text because Scripture teaches that marital relations are good and, and, and it's a wonderful thing. But these people in these three days were told to, to do different things. Why? Because God was going to come down on that mountain and meet them. God's going to come into their presence, their very presence, in three days. So they needed to be ready. The third thing here is the boundaries. God puts boundaries around the mountain. This is really interesting. Verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Wow. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. 
When the trumpet sounds long, then they shall come near the mountains. So they're going to they're gonna wait. It's the trumpet sound. That's what they're waiting for. We've heard that same uh, trumpet. I was going to bring my, I, I have a shofar up, upstairs. It just, and I should have brought that down here. It's a, it, the trumpet. It's the trumpet. It's the, the trump of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and the trump of God is going to rise. The trumpet of God, when God's presence comes. But here's the question. Why does God put these boundaries around the mountain where he's going to be? Because here's Mount Sinai is the most holy place on the planet when God shows up. And God always has a place for these people. They're going to build a tabernacle. They don't have one yet. So the mountain, Mount Sinai, that's why it's so important. That's why people want to go find it. They want to hang out on it. They want to walk around it, even today. You see, watch the video, and you'll see this. Saudi Arabia has, they've, they've actually chain-linked fenced around this one mega area. You can look at it from Google Earth. Pretty, pretty, really interesting. You can see where there could have been ruins and di- different things. Where the pe- There's a rock, like the Rock of Horeb, that was split. You can see pictures of all these things. And, boy, it's, it really looks a lot like... Uh, where that would have been. People want to go there. But God says, listen, I don't want any of you going near this mountain. Why? Because they're unholy and he's holy. And then God's going to establish his presence in the temple. And the temple, remember, it was at Shiloh. It was on the mountain. Then it went to Jerusalem. These are holy places. And then God dwelt in the temple. And then the priest could only go in the temple one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He could go in there, and he would make atonement for the people, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat and all. This is what this mountain represents. God is coming. It's holy. And those people are unholy. They can't come near it. And that's why God's made this boundary here. God's holy, and we aren't. That's, that's the bottom line. And it's an awesome thing to have communion or to speak with an awesome God. Here's the application. I want to be careful with this because I think you could get carried away. But we need as a people to be very, very reverent when we talk to God. God is holy. He is sovereign. He's not the dude upstairs. He's not the, the, the main zane up the hill. We should never refer to God with those frivolous ways. God is holy. He is like no other. He's sovereign. We need to be very, very careful in his presence. These people had to be very careful. They die. But I think as I look at this, and I I really just want to make the point without going, you know, okay, next week we're all going to dress up in suits and ties. And women, you've got to dress a certain way. That legalism, it's it's been tried. It fails. It's bad. It's bad. But when you approach God, and even in your prayer, be so, so holy and reverent and understand that God is holy and he wants to be worshipped. It's serious business to be in the presence of God. That's what we're seeing here in this chapter. The main difference for us is that Jesus has made access to God. In this case, they didn't have it. It was Moses that was their mediator. For you and I, it's Jesus. But Jesus has given us access. We just celebrated that in Easter. Let me show you this verse, Matthew 27. Notice, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
the earth shook and the rocks were split. Why? Because God, God had done his work. It was finished. And that veil, the, the temple, it was Herod, Herod the Great, you know, the, the uh, Jews, I think the temple was 40 cubits high everywhere they had built it. Herod came in and he built a temple. He made it 60. It was, it was massive. So you have this massive four to six inch veil that went across inside the Holy of Holies that was some 45, 50 feet tall. And it was ripped from top to bottom, just showing us or proving to us that God had, or Jesus had given access through his blood to God the Father. We have a different relationship than these people. That's why it's good to keep that in mind as we study this in Exodus, to understand that these people, they're going to be given a law so that they can obey it. Jesus has come and fulfilled the law. And we put our faith in him and what he's already done. These people were being taught God's ways. God is going to communicate to them for the first time. They, they're, they're clueless here. So everything's beginning here. Uh, but for us to look back at it, I'd love to look back at this. The temple represented the, the, the religious system that God had put in place. But when Jesus came and died on the cross, the temple was no more. There's no need for the temple. Why? Because... Jesus' blood shed for mission of sin. There's no reason to go to the temple and, and shed sacrifices anymore or shed blood for sacrifice for sin because Jesus did it. So the, the, very interesting when you look at all those things in light of the New Testament. But here in, in chapter 19, these people are getting their very first encounter. And God says, wash, be prepared, and watch out for the boundaries. See, this is a holy place. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and he, and he sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready, third day's coming. Don't come near your wives. So, so they were supposed to really be serious about that time. Now, here's the meeting with God, verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning. The mountain lights up, thunderings, lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet, remember that's what they were listening for, was very loud, so that all the people who were camped trembled. This is not just your basic eruption of a volcano. Again, when you look at the videos, very interesting, all these desert, rocky mountains, very red soil. But there's one mountain right in the middle of this area that's black on top, like the, like the rocks were burnt. Very interesting. Could be. The, the archaeologists and this other Christian that have gone there, they make a big case that, that that's the, the location of Mount Sinai. I, I don't know. It, it could be. But God shows up, and it's so loud, thunders. It's, there's so much going on. There's, there's, there's the cloud of smoke that these people at the base of the mountain, they're like, oh, no, what did we do? They are frightened. They're afraid. That's what it says here. They trembled, and Moses, verse 17, brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. They were hiding in their tents, and Moses said, no, no, you've got to come out. Come out, come out, wherever you are, you know, and let's stand at the foot of the mountain, and God, we're going to have this encounter. Now, Mount Sinai, verse 18, was completely in smoke, so it's burning. The rocks are burning because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. So, I mean, think of a furnace, you know, the mountain. It's, these people are afraid. 
And there's a lot of noise going on, and the earth and the mountain quaked, it says, greatly. must have been awesome to see that, to hear that. I mean, that's, that's what those people, they, they felt the earth shaking that day. And again, this is kind of a combination of a, a volcano erupting and thunderstorm, but I think it's much greater than that. That's why they trembled so much. God is revealing himself to these people in cloud, in fire, in smoke, in sound. He's revealing himself. He has great power. He has control. And he's doing that with that mountain. As they look up and their mouths, jaws are dropped, uh, you know, and they're looking at the mountain. So the people in the camp, they trembled there. And then the trumpet sound, verse 19, sounded long and became louder and louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him with a voice. So this trumpet, this is interesting. All the people heard his voice. Everybody heard the voice of God. We don't know what he said, but they heard his voice. And it's, it's, to me, it's like the trumpet voice, and it got louder, and God became closer, and got closer, and that's what it's, it's depicting for us here. The, the sound came from heaven, came right down to that mountain, right in their midst, louder and louder, drawing the people there, and they were just like freaking out. And then verse 20, God came down. The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and that's where the Lord called Moses up there with him to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. So Moses already gone up and down and up and down. He's going up again here in verse 20. And God has put all his power there on display at the top of that mountain. As the people at the foot of the mountain are freaking out and they're afraid, Moses just courageously marches right up the mountain. They must have been like, Moses, you really, you, why are you doing this? You know, you're on a suicide mission mode. But God is doing something special in front of the people. He wants the people to see that Moses is the mediator, that Moses is the one that's going to go between God and them. And he's going to do this over and over. That's my next point here in verse 21, Moses the mediator. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them prayer. So they're at the foot of the mountain. Moses has courage. He's marched out to the top of the mountain. God looks down at the bottom of the mountain. Those people are, you know, people are, are people. Man, I wonder how far I can go before something happens. And God sees them, and he, he says, you know, I made boundaries for these idiots, but they're going to come up after you. I don't want to hurt them. I mean, really, that's what he said. Go down and tell them, Moses, right now. Run down there and tell them. So Moses is going to go back down there and warn them the curious, the ones that were sneaking around there. And also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So we're not really sure the priests are elders, possibly. We don't, we don't know of other priests besides Jethro. But uh, maybe th when Moses had, uh, Jethro had told him to break everybody up into groups, maybe he assigned some religious or spiritual leaders there. We're not really sure, but he says there's priests. So let's, let's get those guys to set themselves apart or consecrate themselves. But Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us, saying set boundaries around the, mount, around the mountain to consecrate it. Again, God was showing that 
Moses that he is the one that's going to mediate for the people. So now Moses has to go down there and tell the people, don't go past the boundary. God told him once, now it's going to be Moses that becomes the mediator going back and forth there. And God sends Moses back down. Verse 24, then the Lord sent him away, get down, then come up again. <laughs> Poor guy. I mean, he's gone up and down this mountain several times. That's why I said he must have had real strong legs. And this time, when you come up, bring Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people, and he spoke to them. So Moses, again, he's going up and down. This time he brings Aaron. Why? Because God wants the people to see that Aaron now is going to be the high priest. Remember, Moses is the prophet. Aaron is going to be the high priest of the nation. So God wants the people to watch Moses and Aaron go up there and live. They're going to go up and live, and they're going to come down, and they'll be alive. The other people couldn't do that. They had to be separate from God. I think that's really under, uh, important to understand that God has made Moses now the mediator between him and the people, and he's given authority to Moses to speak, and also Aaron has been set apart now to be the priest of the nation. But there's another important point here, and I, I want to make this. I think most of you get it. God has appointed a mediator here, and it's Moses. Moses becomes the picture of Christ. We've seen a lot of those pictures in this story of Exodus. Now Moses becomes the mediator for the people. God's appointed him to go between himself and all the people. And a mediator is, is just the one that's been appointed God has chosen him, not the, men, not the people in the camp. God didn't say, okay, you guys vote on somebody. Let's do this democratically. No, God chose Moses. God singled him out to be the one to do that work. And I think that's really important to note. The priests are told not to touch the mountain. The people are told not to go up the mountain, but Moses and Aaron have this ability because they've been appointed, and Moses specifically, to be the mediator here. Now, in the New Testament, and I'm going to end with this thought because it's, it's, it's a great thought. It's in Hebrews. It's in Hebrews. Notice this verse in Hebrews 8. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. This is speaking of Christ. Jesus is our mediator. A mediator is the one that works kind of in between the two sides. And, and by the way, that's happening. <laughs> a week from Friday, um, I'm going to be going, representing the church against the lawsuit. We've been in this lawsuit for years, and, and it's coming to an end. And so I'm going to be in this room. We have a mediator. We hired a judge. Our lawyer and the other lawyers hired it, and we're going to try to settle this whole thing. That happens on the 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 13th of April, a week from this next Friday. So this Sunday morning, I'm going to talk about that, and we're going to, I'm going to ask for prayer and, and to, to, that the Lord would just prosper this church, this church body, and keep us from spending any more money. And we're hoping that, that it'll all come back, but we don't know. But it's mediation. So this Moses is the mediator, and then Jesus becomes our mediator between a sinful man and a holy God, we have Jesus. Don't you love that? He's your mediator. When there's a disagreement, the mediator steps in and, and works it out. And that's what Jesus has done for you and I because we're sinners. We're human. 
We're sinners. The Bible says that all are sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We, there's no one righteous. We're all sinners. Sin, transgression, breaking the law. That's, that's who we are. That, that really should describe anybody in this room. But we've been saved. And Jesus came and he paid our ransom, remember? We've been talking a lot about that the last week. He shed his blood and he paid our ransom so that we could be free from that. And Jesus goes before the bar of God and says, he's mine, she's mine. And he's the mediator between us and God because of all that he's done. I love that truth. It's in 1 Timothy 2. Look at this verse. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Again, the similarities in Exodus and the New Testament are just mind-blowing. I love this story. Next week, uh, on Wednesday night, we'll start with an introduction to the Ten Commandments, and I'll be gone for a couple weeks. Pastor Chris is going to be teaching. You need to be here for Pastor Chris's teaching on Wednesday night. Um, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks. We're going to Greece and Rome, and we're going to follow the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's going to be a really great time. Uh, there's 21 of us in our, on our, our tour group, and I'm looking forward to that. But uh, Pastor Chris will be here teaching. I'll be here next week, and then after that, Pastor Chris will be here. He's going to start the study of Leviticus in two weeks on Sunday night. I finish Proverbs this Sunday night, and then uh, Pastor Chris will start Leviticus on Sunday night, and then Daniel teaches a week, then I teach a week, then Chris, then Daniel, then me, and we just kind of rotate through the book of Leviticus. So Sunday night study starts in a couple weeks. It's going to be really good going through the book of Leviticus because you'll get all the law and why, and it's really a great, great study. But here we have at the close of our study tonight, Moses has the mediator. You and I have a mediator, and it's the man, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And he stands at the bar of God and says, they're mine. He's our defense attorney. He stands there and defends each and every one of us. What a glorious truth. Amen. Father, thank you for